You're listening to Soundbites, a podcast by the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra to share, inspire, and empower our classical music community here in Northwest Arkansas and beyond. My name is Urjean Kong, your host for the podcast and concertmaster of APO. Hailed as wonderfully poetic, exuberant yet sensitive, and very compelling in his power and presence, pianist Nathan Carteret has distinguished himself in the concert world by performing a huge range of works from Elizabethan keyboard music to music written today. Here, I speak with him about his newest project, researching and performing the works of Lewis Ballard, known as the father of Native American music composition. Nathan, let's start with a very straightforward question. Who was Lewis Ballard? Lewis Ballard is sometimes called the father of Native American classical music. Um, he was born in 1931 and he died in 2007. He's from Eastern Oklahoma, very close to Arkansas. And he is a, of a mixed uh, Quapaw and Cherokee descent. And he grew up on Indian lands and his parents represented both of those um, tribal uh, cultures. He was is credited as the first um, Native American composer to get a graduate degree in composition, which he got from the University of Tulsa. His master's in music, he studied with a student of Arnold Schoenberg's called Bella Rosa. And he also spent time in Aspen studying with Darius Mio and other uh, pretty big name composers. So this guy had a lot of exposure to good education and even cutting edge uh, musical techniques uh, in you know the 50s and 60s from his exposure to Mio and Schoenberg and all that stuff. Uh, he was a very successful composer because his music uh, was also able to reach a mass audience. He wrote music for, uh, for NFL halftime shows, okay? He wrote music really? that was played at the, yes, he, he wrote music that was played at the Rose Bowl, Kennedy Center, at popular mass events in addition to this sort of more concert style, art style music that uh, I'll be talking about today in the piano. But he wrote for large um, Hollywood type ensembles. He wrote for chamber music. There's an octet, a quartet, uh, there's a cello piano suite. Uh, there's a lot of uh, rich material out there that he composed. And another way that he uh, became so influential in the world of Native American culture and uh, composition was that he actually worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, designing curriculum for Indian schools. Mm -hmm. So he actually was able to incorporate uh, a lot of uh, cultural things related to music into the Indians' education. And by the way, in his own, because I know that these days we're all called upon to be more sensitive about language, in his own writing and in his own interviews, he freely mixed uh, the following terms, Native American, American Indian, Indian and Aboriginal. For him, he used them interchangeably. And so I'm just putting that out there so that when we refer in these terms, it comes a lot from his own writing and his own uh, commentary. He also uh, wrote a textbook for use in the general schools called American Indian Music in the Classroom. And so this was not specifically for Indian schools, but it could be used by public schools or whatever throughout the country. 
So he was influential in, a, in terms of his success as a composer. He was influential in terms of his commitment as an educator. And he was influential in terms of his whole philosophy of the way he incorporated Native music. Can you speak a little bit more about his musical styles? It sounds like he kind of encompassed a wide range, but you mentioned Schoenberg, uh, Schoenberg's uh, students and Mio. Do you see influences of that in his style? Or... Uh, yeah, there, I mean, he could write outside of that because he did write music for these mass events, uh, but he did concentrate on uh, music that I would say is sort of uh, atonal, I guess, it, not necessarily having a tonal center, uh, he would incorporate, however, uh, true melodies and some composed melodies from native culture and uh, use a more free harmonic system. He himself wrote that he was uh, attracted to the, by the example of Bartok, who looms really large uh, in the past century because uh, before Bartok, when classical composers wanted to use quote-unquote folk music, they were usually quoting a sort of urban... Uh, imitation of folk music. Uh, for instance, in the list Hungarian Rhapsodies, uh, Bartok later commented that that music was not Hungarian at all, but it was really the music that you would hear in the tourist centers, okay? And Bartok took an Edison wax cylinder, went out into deep into the countryside in Transylvania, Hungary, Romania, uh, Croatia, and he recorded actual peasantry, this is before World War I, singing of their um, traditional folk tunes. And he used that as the basis for a new style of composition uh, where he wanted to, to um, have the influence of the true folk material and yet have an artistic uh, concert side to it. And so just like uh, Bartok, Ballard wanted to use a true native uh, music and also native in spirit, but to have these more modern conceptions of harmony and technique embracing all that stuff into one final product. And Nathan, do you have any specific pieces that demonstrate this? Yeah, actually, um, one of his most um, performed pieces is a piece he wrote in 1963, and he wrote it while he was studying with Darius Mio, and it's called Four American Indian Preludes. And the four preludes are about, oh, 10 minutes in length or so, and um, they incorporate uh, Melodies, textures, and rhythmic characteristics of Native American music. But uh, definitely the harmony, you would consider it more in a modern style. So the four preludes are called Daylight, and they, they have their, um, what I believe is the Kwapa language, they have their name to that, but I won't try and pronounce it here for us now. But the preludes are entitled Daylight, The Hunt, Love Song, and Warrior Dance. And so they all uh, reference certain uh, parts or certain scenes of Native culture. Let's listen to some excerpts from Lewis Ballard's Four American Indian Piano Preludes. I will attempt to pronounce the movements for you. Number one, Daylight, Ombasca. Number two, The Hunt, Tabide. Number three, Love Song, Nekatohe. Number four, Warrior Dance, Tokani. Thank you. 
You just heard Lewis Ballard's Four American Indian Piano Preludes. That last movement is Tokani, or Warrior Dance, featuring Emmanuel Archuli as pianist. This is an audio podcast, so I know you cannot see this, but imagine for that last glissando, first elbowing the chord cluster before you run up and down the keyboard. And that's exactly what Emmanuel Archuli does to create that celebratory, powerful ending. Nathan, is there another piece that you can share? Yeah, his, um, he didn't have a huge output for solo piano, but uh, later on in his career in the 80s, he wrote three uh, large-scale uh, fantasies um, for a solo piano uh, based on different cities that he visited. And one that uh, I find very interesting is called City of Fire. And it's based on Los Alamos, where they did some nuclear testing in the uh, United States. And in Los Alamos, uh, City of Fire, uh, you'll notice uh, definitely a very modernistic um, and virtuoso, explicitly virtuoso approach to the piano. And yet the same uh, rhythmic characteristics from the Native American preludes can be found in the City of Fire. So this is an example of even when he wasn't composing uh, music that he wanted to be classified as, for instance, Native American music or referencing Native American music, he was so influenced by the spirit of that music and the techniques of that music that it infused his whole compositional style. And he was able to use it in pieces that were more uh, just completely original and not referential. This is City of Fire.
What I really love, Nathan, is this idea of the hyphenated identity, the idea of the hyphen fusing the two identities together, or, or not in some cases. And of course, you and I just performed a program around Florence Price. So I guess I want to ask you the same question regarding Lewis Ballard's music. How do you see his hyphenated identity being musically represented? Well, I want to answer your question first by reading out a quote from Lewis Ballard um, that, that he wrote late in an interview. I think this is for 2004, he died in 2007. And for me, it kind of sums up um, his approach because remember he was a person who grew up in the native culture that had this ambition to uh, impart his ideas into the classical world or so-called Western world of music. And so what he said, and this is a quotation, what is needed in America is an awakening and reorienting of our total spiritual and cultural perspective to embrace, understand, and learn from the Aboriginal American what it is that motivates their musical and artistic impulses. And I like that quote because uh, he's, first of all, he's connecting uh, the act of composition and listening and performance with spirituality and cultural perspective, which is important. And second, because he's talking about what is the impulse behind uh, these um, elements from native culture that he includes in his music. In other words, what's the deeper meaning? And I think it's interesting because as a hyphenated identity, he wanted to represent in his music the native culture, native experience, the deeper meaning of that. Um, before him, there is a lot of uh, so-called American Indian music used in classical music, mostly by white people, okay? In fact, there was a whole movement of this called the Indianist movement in the early, the late 1800s, early 1900s. There was a whole publishing house dedicated to this called the Wawan Press, where white people were actually, uh, they were like, uh, sort of like um, benevolent-minded progressives. They wanted to preserve in their own way certain aspects of native, native culture. And so they started quoting uh, Indian themes in their classical music, but always in a very sort of Victorian and schmaltzy way that had nothing to do with the deeper meaning or the, the cultural or spiritual meaning that it would have had to the so-called Aboriginal American, as Ballard said. And so um, I think that that is a really important motive behind his impulse was to use the music, but to try and retain the cultural significance of it and not to degrade it into pseudo ethnic um, character piece. And to close, I guess I would like to ask you a personal musical question, which is how has studying and being immersed in the sound world of Lewis Ballard affected you as a musician? And how specifically has it affected you in your commitment to program underrepresented voices? Well, as a musician, I, I sort of have an insatiable uh, curiosity towards all things. And I'm not, I've never limited myself to Beethoven sonatas and, and Chopin etudes. Uh, though I love them, I haven't limited myself to that. And the discovery in particular of Lewis Ballard uh, turns out to be a huge uh, tip of the iceberg of, uh, of a sort of culture that I really had no idea about. Honestly, it's eye-opening. I mean, not only the Indian did I learn about this Indianist uh, movement and all these publications from 120, 30 years ago, 
But I learned about other composers that were influenced by Ballard that are writing now, like Brent Michael Davids, who is most famous for writing the soundtrack to Last of the Mohicans, but has composed a lot of concert classical music. And also Jared Tate, um, who is a Cherokee composer who has written a lot of things um, for concert music. And so to know that there is this community, in other words, it goes beyond one person, I think is really enriching. And for me, um, the community exists for the classical music that we study in school and that everyone knows. But for something like this, it's a chance that we can build a bridge and even um, maybe you don't know what the future holds. Could there be more composers that are inspired by this? Could there be, be more performers that are inspired by this? And so that's what I really think motivates me is that is that bridge building and, and trying to see this whole community that exists right next door to us, but we never saw it before. You know what I mean? So that's to me, that's very inspiring. Thank you for tuning in to APO's Soundbites. If you enjoyed the episode, please share and tell your friends. More information about APO can be found on their website, arphil.org, A-R-P-H-I-L dot O-R-G, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Please join us again next time for more explorations in the rich world of classical music. <laughs> <laughs>